Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome, folks, to Roach on Recovery. Getting used to this every other week off. It's no good. Show. Okay. This is your host, Orville Roach, along with my producer and co-host, Chris Morales, in the house. Yes, indeed. 646-564-9909 is the number. 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call and speak to us. If you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our show website, and that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Again, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Also, you can just listen to the show via the call in number if that's the only means you have to do so. You got to make it happen. Make it happen. So it'll take a while for us to get used to our uh, new schedule through the end of June of every week off. Uh, necessary, of course, for all the things that we have going on, but it feels like when you miss, if, like in football, you miss a game. That's or, it, yeah. Or, well, football analogy, maybe you miss a month and trying to get back in the flow. Back so in the game shape. You you kind of lose that uh, flow that you had going on. So we're still recovering from the, from the month off. Yeah, that's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly right. So... Um, I don't have anything for a recap. I can't even remember what the last show was about. That's how long it's been. You see, I can't uh, even remember the last game I played. The so. last show was if if you don't <laughs> if at first you don't succeed. Oh, that's right. Yeah, reentry or re re going into treatment. No, I can't think of any recap off the top of my head. All right, let's get to our uh, NFL. And by the, can I just before we drop my favorite NFL line. Can I just say, and and we're speaking to, I know you're from New York, but this is a Bay Area crowd. Uh, Our 49ers are running to the bank. They're just pocketing cap room and running to the bank. I just got to get that out there because I know everybody feels incredibly frustrated in this area with this free agency period. And with that, we'll drop the bite. (laughs) 
The 49ers are on the clock. <laughs> I got nothing. What, I, got, I got nothing for this team. What what pick are they? Seventh. In the draft. Oh, okay. So did they finish? So they had a better record than the Cowboys. Yeah. Oh, okay. Somehow, somewhat, that field goal in overtime, that field goal in overtime that we hit pushed, against the Bears. Pushed them back three draft, uh, <laughs> drafts. That, that was the worst field goal in 49ers history as it stands. Um, is Kaepernick going to Cleveland? Pumpernickel, rather. It's a great question. Uh, it's Cleveland or Denver. Denver seems to be where he wants to go, but best fit. You got to be Denver, right? No, best fit for him with his skill set and what he brings to the table. Uh, still probably Denver. Okay. All right, they got a short passing game offense. Short passing game, good running game. West Coast, Gary Kubiak. He went to West Coast. Right. Right. Okay. All right. And the draft is when? Oh, it was April 28th or something oh, like that? Oh, really moving it further and further back. Oh, it's, yeah. They want they want the NFL to be a calendar year okay. is what they want. So. All right. The only thing I'm hoping for, and so far it seems – like that's going to be the case is that my Cowboys will not pick a quarterback with the fourth pick since there are no can't miss quarterback quarterbacks right. in there. Right. And I hope they, and you, you heard it here first, publicly stated, my public wish is that they get uh, Joey Bosa out of Ohio State, I believe, defensive end. Yeah, even after all the... I guess the the whole, the bad character... Ish, issues, if you will, they don't seem to bother you for an NFL team. I didn't. I'm not really following all of that combine stuff, so I don't know anything about it. He has character issues. <laughs> well, he oh, the only thing I heard is that he might be the second coming of J.J. Watt, and I said we got to get him. They said you can plug him in for the next ten years. Boom, Pro Bowler. Boom, that's it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think he is that type of talent. Mm-hmm. He didn't. I think it was he, so he didn't participate in the combine. Okay. And then he in an interview stated and also took to Twitter stating like I don't know he doesn't he doesn't believe in it and all these people trying to measure intent like he he all went I want to know is has, like, has he gotten arrested and uh, and charged with no, crimes? No, okay, no, that's no, what I mean when I say no. character issues. Okay. Other than that, they should all keep their mouths shut and stay off of Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> yeah, good before call. The, before the draft, after the draft, and until you got to lease uh, your your first big time long term deal. I agree. All right, we're gonna um, anything else on NFL before we move? Um, probably about it. I'm stalling uh, having any talk about the NBA until uh, April. Maybe late March, maybe maybe March, but <laughs> why is it because the well, you know the Warriors are playing the Knicks. Ah, uh, don't even mention that team <laughs> on the on, on the airwaves. All right, let's get to our topics, plural. Okay, two for Tuesday rant. Yeah, A special two for Tuesday rant. Um, some important stuff to talk about. So we got some problems in the in the old colonies. Big problems. No. Being from New York, uh, we we we're only allowed to pronounce heroin one one way, and that's 
Heron. <laughs> so right. I don't mean any ridicule or any minimization of the problem when I say that. That's just how it's pronounced in the streets of Harlem. Heron. No, that's it. Okay. Yeah, that's how that's how they know it. But uh there has been a Heron epidemic that has hit the eastern seaboard, especially most of our original 13 colony states, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, you name it. New York, I don't consider that it's a colony state, but I, I don't consider the heroin epidemic there new. It's really never left might have died down a little bit. Right. But once it starts to hit these uh rural um I ninety five corridor beautiful trees in the fall and, 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 and Yeah, and peaceful beautiful, little family town. Yes, uh, rustic little <laughs> areas. Right. Uh then, you know, it becomes front page news. And it has become front page news. So one of the things we're going to do today is I found an article which I think perfectly captures what's going on. And we'll read from it a little bit because, you know, you got parents who are, I mean, the amount of overdoses and then overdose-related deaths have just skyrocketed just in the first few months of this year in comparison to all of last year. Okay? Mm Mm-hmm. How this started, a number of ways. Um, it could have been, you know, how kids, and a lot of this, by the way, is, is youth, adolescent. Let's include up to age 21. That's because back in daytime, the adolescent was up to age 21. Yep. So for the sake of our discussion, we'll say up to age 21. Sure. So between the ages of 14 and 21, this is where it's really hitting home. Mm-hmm. That's the age group that it's hitting. And it's not necessarily someone just, you know, starting out, uh, you know, first drug right off the, the top that they're using is, is heroin. Right. Okay. For some it is. Um, but you know how and we started to see this in our adolescent program when we had it, you know, the kids just do anything, crush anything. They'll crush a vitamin oh, C tablet and, and yeah. snort it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You name it. Um They'll crush a, uh, a Tums and, 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 and snort it. And, and anything to see see if I can get high or see if it does anything to me. So it's no surprise that if they are able to get their hands on prescription narcotics of any kind, of any kind, uh, uh, more than over-the-counter strength ibuprofen, you name it, they'll crush it and snort it. So they're getting their hands on street um Street dealt um, Oxycontin, Oxycontin, yeah, Oxycontin and, yep. and all those types of uh, uh, opiate-based narcotics. And when the supply runs out, or you know, it gets difficult to get those because you know those aren't really, and those aren't being manufactured in uh, Mexico and other in other places. Right. So they end up going to the the cheaper and and and, and more readily available. Street heroin. Yeah. And so use what you can get your hands on. Right. And so now uh these kids and we'll we'll call them kids for now are all getting hooked on dope. And 
I was going to write, but I said, I don't think this would sound right, but I can, I'll can i say it. It sounds better saying it than writing it. I was going to write, this is not your, these aren't your daddy's dope fiends. Okay, so right. when you have right. an image in your mind of a dope fiend, okay, it's not going to be the kids we're talking about. So, heroin in New England, more abundant and deadly, is the title of the article. Okay. Out of the uh, New York Times. Heroin, which has long flourished in the nation's big urban centers, has been making an alarming comeback in the smaller cities and towns of New England. Okay, I can already see what's going to annoy me in reading this article. Bits and pieces of this article is constantly having to say New England, knowing how much I hate the New England Patriots. You're going to have to say it over and over, so my friend. I'll, have to, I'll just have to deal with it and get over it. From quaint fishing villages on the Maine coast to the interior of the great Northwoods extending across Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont, officials report a sharp rise in the availability of the crystalline powder and in overdoses and deaths attributed to it. It's easier to get heroin in some of these places than it is to get a UPS delivery, says one doctor, an addiction specialist. Here in Portland, Maine, better known for its laid-back vibe and lively waterfront, posters warn of the dangers of overdose. Please, they say, do not use alone. Imagine this. This is what the posters say. Please do not use alone. Do a tester shot (laughs) and use the recovery position, which is lying on one side to avoid choking on vomit. What has this world come to? My goodness gracious. Yeah, that's... I, uh, I cannot imagine that, seeing posters like that. That, that. that they feel, and this is not a criticism, I'm just saying. Yeah, this is why it's happening. Yeah, they feel it has gotten so bad that we have to publicly post posters around instructing them how to use to avoid overdosing and or death. Right. And in the case that something is going wrong, here's if you're walking down the street and see somebody experiencing this, here's how to help them out. Yes. The city, like wow. many others across the country, is experiencing an inordinate amount of heroin overdoses. We've got overdoses in the overdose, overdose deaths in the bathrooms of fast food restaurants. This is an increase like we haven't seen in many years, said the assistant chief of the Port, Portland Police Department. And just so you know, when we say Portland, we're talking about Portland, Maine, not Portland, Oregon. Which doesn't mean that it is not happening up there either, (laughs) in the great Pacific Northwest. Right. Not far from where we are. New Hampshire recorded 40 deaths from heroin last year, up from just seven a decade ago. Hmm. In Vermont, now you know how small Vermont is. Yes. Okay. It's mainly. It's about the size of. Uh, it's about the size of Swan Lake. <laughs> yeah, and it's mainly green. It's it's mainly hills. Yeah, the health department reported that 914 people were treated for heroin abuse last year, up from 654 the year before, and an increase of almost 40 percent. In one year. Yep. 
Heroin is our biggest problem right now, said the captain of the Rutland, Vermont Police Department. One reason for the rise in heroin use is the restrictions on doctors and prescribing painkillers. The tightened supply of pain pills and physical changes that made them harder to crush and snort for a quick high have diverted many users to heroin, which is much cheaper and easier to get. Hmm. New England Society of Addiction Medicine said that some doctors in the region had been overprescribing painkillers, which can be gateway drugs to heroin. Federal study in 2011 showed that the treatment admission rate for opiate addiction was higher in Maine and New England than anywhere else in the country, though communities elsewhere are reporting problems. If you recall, Mr. Producer, in the past, it would be San Francisco, mm-hmm. New York, mm-hmm. Chicago, L.A., Detroit, Philly. Right. The urban right. centers. Right. It would not be the rustic village on the upper side of upper left side of Vermont. No. Yeah, no. Aren't they just supposed to be eating Ben and Jerry's up there and just being ben, happy? Ben and Jerry's and uh, what's the other thing they make up there? Maple syrup. Yeah, that's it. On your pancakes. <laughs> we had a bad epidemic, and now we have a worse epidemic, says the police chief. I'm treating a 21... 21- 22-year-old pregnant woman with an intravenous heroin addiction. Yet the rise in heroin abuse predates the restrictions on painkillers, leading some officials to blame the simple law of supply and demand. Distributors in New York always blaming New York. There we go. (laughs) Always blaming New York. See a wide-open market in northern New England? Where law enforcement can be spotty and users are willing to pay premium prices. A $6 bag of heroin in New York City fetches $10 in southern New England, but up to $30 or $40 in northern New England. Oh, wow. Law enforcement officials said the dealers get a tremendous profit margin while the addict pays half of what he might have to shell out for a prescription painkiller. If the market is flooded with low-priced, high-grade heroin, which it is high-grade in comparison to yesteryear, a significant population is addicted. Ironically, he says, that's the free market. Wow. Heroin is one of the most addictive drugs in the world. So let's put a caveat on that or an explanation on that. Of course heroin is addictive, physically addictive, number one. Psychologically addictive, number two. Very hard to get people off of because of, obviously, the withdrawals that people go through. However, um, withdrawal management, pay attention to that term because it's coming into the new lexicon. Mm -hmm. Withdrawal management has come a long way in the last 25, 30 years. Okay. And they have come out with different types of medication that will can assist someone in dealing with withdrawals. So it is a very addictive drug, but it's not the most addictive drug in the world. That's still the big N. The, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. The big nicotine. The big nicotine. 
About a quarter of everyone who tries it becomes dependent on it. Users can quickly develop a tolerance, prompting them to seek more and more and more until the pursuit takes over their lives and often leads to ruin. The definition of an addict. Yes. We're not going to use names here, but... uh, First and last. First name, last initial. Teresa D., who lives on the streets of Portland, says she sells her body three times a day to support her heroin habit. She lost custody of her two young children about a year ago, and their father died. This is an important story, what I just said, because if you recall some time ago, a person asked a question about why women are so underrepresented in treatment That's right. in comparison to men. That's right. And the answer I gave speaks to exactly what this young lady um, is doing is to support doing. her habits. Right. They have... The, other means, right. let's say, right. to uh, continue to support their habit and therefore stay out there longer. And this young lady is selling her body to support her habit, which is unfortunate. If she's fortunate enough to, uh, yes, let's use the term, be driven into recovery, um, then we have to now deal with the trauma of that. Right. You know what I mean? Not just the addiction, the trauma of being an addict and and all that stuff, all the stuff that we then did in pursuit Mm -hmm. of -hmm. the drug. I've lost everything, she said. The heroin numbs the pain and makes you not care about life. The only problem with that is, is that it doesn't last until you have to shoot up again or snort again or... However else they figured out to use it again because it wears down. And then when it wears down, reality and life smacks you back in the face again. And, of course, if it's heroin, of course, the, the physical you know, side effects start to hit you. And even if a person sincerely and deeply wants to stop, um, Sometimes they're not made aware of the withdrawal management services that are available because mm-hmm. the, the fear of the withdrawal of side effects stops people. I want to stop, but I, I can't deal with, you know, whatever the side effects may be. And it's different for everybody. Um, and I think now more information has to go out there that there are medications available. And I'm not really an advocate of like a medication for a medication exchange, so to speak, just in general, big picture. But, however, in a situation, a life-saving situation like this, if there's a medication out there that's going to stop throwing up or, you know, reduce the cramping or, you know, right. whatever, whatever all the different side effects are, right. absolutely you would do that. Right. Because it doesn't have to be something that you're on long-term. It's just for the period of time that the withdrawal lasts, and it's usually five days to 10 days, 14 days, you know, depends on the individual, how long it may last, how much they're using and all of that stuff. Um, but there, you know, again, there's withdrawal management services now available. Is it readily available? No, because right now, and this will come in our second half, you know, the powers that be are still finding about how available do they want to make these things to the doctors to prescribe to the addicts and or to the clinics or to, Substance abuse treatment providers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it's not a matter of them not being available. Is that their availability to the people that can provide them to the addicts 
is currently restricted. Okay? Well, back to uh, Teresa D. Her only concern right now is scoring more heroin. She pays no attention to food and sleeps where she is or in the shelter. So she's in the full throes of straight addiction. Of, of yeah. Straight addiction. With more people becoming addicted, officials in New England are bracing for the likely consequences. More burglaries. We know what addicts do. Yes. Um, heavier demands on health, welfare, and law enforcement services. So we always say treatment is cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> treatment is cheaper. Of course, invest, yeah. Invest in treatment. There's plenty of data to support sa- that. Saves on the hospital. Saves on the welfare system. Saves on the criminal justice system. But sometimes they they got to be hit over the head with a hammer before they realize it. Novice users, this is this is a danger point. Novice users are more likely to share needles, leading to an, an expected increase in infections like HIV and, of course, hepatitis C. Okay. How much is one of those hepatitis C treatments these days? Thousand bucks, I yeah, think, per sure. per pill. Yep, okay. and multiply that by the amount of people in addiction who might come down with that and who will eventually need that and who mm-hmm. don't have the... Yeah. Okay. So... I mean, speaking more to your point that invest in treatment... Yep, and timing is perfect. So what we were just talking about, Maine is the first state that has limited access to specific medications that have been proven to be effective in treating addiction. A step taken to save money. They've limited access to medications to treat opiate addictions. Mm -hmm. Many here worry that such restrictions, and by the way, it's not just there. The The concerns are all over, even here in California. The restrictions are likely to make things worse and lead to more fatalities. For now, emergency responders are busier than ever. We used to have just two or three overdose calls a week. Now we're seeing two to three or four a day. Mm -hmm. I would say that's a crisis. I would agree. Most of the heroin reaching New England originates in, where else? Colombia. Comes through, where else? Mexico. The number of seizures along the border jumped sixfold between 2011 from 2005, but enough is getting through, as always, to major distribution centers in the Northeast, including Philly and New York, always blaming New York. Thank you for throwing Philly in there. That is flowing steadily into the northern New England states. In May, six people were arrested in connection with a $3.3 million heroin ring in Springfield, Massachusetts, the home of the Simpsons. <laughs> the Basketball Hall of Fame. Yes. Uh, where investigators seized 45,000 single dose bags of heroin. The purity of the, and this is the, the, the thing, everything is more. I used to think back in the 80s when, uh, you know, the older folk 
were saying, you know, the, the marijuana that you guys are smoking is worse than the, you know, more powerful than the stuff and worse than the stuff we smoked in the 70s or the 60s, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's been proven, clinically proven, to be correct. You know what I mean? So, and that's across all the drugs. Yep. And the heroin is no different. It's um, the purity of the heroin varies widely. Um, bad batches have been reported throughout the region. And because heroin reaches the brain so quickly and witnesses hesitate to call for help immediately, overdoses are often fatal. Right. Lords C. lived in a small town near Maine, had been a heroin addict for several years, according to her family and friends. They said her addiction led her to prostitute herself to pay for her next fix. This is a shame. She's been to prison for drug trafficking. Her family thought she was clean or going to stay clean after her most recent uh, experience in prison. She was even preparing to go back to school, cosmetology, hairdressing, and hoped she might regain custody of her young son. But one night last month, she injected some very pure heroin, according to her father, a retired Amtrak police officer, lives in Maryland. She was taking the same amount she would usually take, but it was so concentrated and pure that she OD'd. By the time an ambulance arrived, she was brain dead. She caught pneumonia a few days later and then died. Her death was especially awful, her father said, because he thought she was finally turning her life around. But I knew, he says, I was going to get that call someday. You try to prepare yourself for it, and you think you can handle it, but you don't handle it very well. And that's the article. And although it's taking a snapshot of just these New England states, it's, I would say, the only part of the country that's not really majorly affected is the center. Right, okay. I, I think along the coastlines, even the southern coasts. Yeah, I and, would agree. And then California, obviously, and um, even like up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, pretty much anywhere there's major shipping ports. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know, essentially. You know I mean? mm-hmm. um, it's just uh, taking over. You know, and when we were in treatment in daytime back in the uh, late 80s, It was about one third, one third, one third. You know, so you had one third of the people there were heroin addicts, one third were slash cocaine crack addicts, and one third um, alcoholics. Okay, you you wouldn't dare find someone if they'd say, "Hey, what are you here for? Marijuana?" They like throw you out. You know. Yeah, like, right, you right, too right. Many people on you know on hard stuff to for that. That's not to minimize mar- marijuana. I'm just saying. Um. But the the image of a heroin addict was not that of a 17, 18, 19-year-old kid from suburbia. Mm-hmm. That certainly wasn't the image. Um, it was someone who, you know, 35 to 45 years old, um, white or black, okay? And the only difference between them, and this is what we kind of 
anecdotally noticed is that the more well-off you were economically, that meant that you could afford to buy better quality heroin. Right. And therefore did not experience some of the physical side effects that you would see from someone who was buying less quality yeah, stuff heroin. Cut with all sorts of chemicals. Right, and, and or someone who was living on the streets and so on and so forth. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And you put side by side someone both using heroin for 20 years, and one person looks like you would never be able to tell. Right, And the other right, person, right. you're like, yeah, you can tell. Mm-hmm. Missing teeth, and, you know, they just looked apart. The whole nine, right. Okay, but both of them are heroin addicts for 20 years. Um, and so now we're faced with where we got kids. You know, what happened to the gateway, the marijuana first, the alcohol, and and even uh, cocaine. I mean, kids weren't into shooting shooting up cocaine. That that was a thing that heroin addicts did, mixing coke and heroin. I think it was called speedballing, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, I think it's still called that. So... Now that it has hit these communities, it is front-page news. Everyone's hands are up in the air for two reasons. Number one, hey, look what's happening. And at the same time, hey, what are we going to, you know, what in the world can we do about it? Mm-hmm. Well, heroin has been in the urban communities for years. It just hasn't made news. It's come back to the urban communities long time ago just hasn't made news i read an article that up in upstate new york in buffalo where you know upstate new york it's hit there hard and they were going to spend a certain number of millions of dollars i don't remember the exact number but what caught my eye was the number of beds that it said it was going to provide in addition to what they already had two just two additional beds wow buffalo's no you've been you you went through buffalo right yeah. on your trip buffalo's no small town well, no, it's pretty big. You know what I'm saying? Two additional beds, that's it for a heroin epidemic? And you don't, when you're dealing with heroin, you don't just need or you just can't have residential beds. You must have detox centers. Right, right. So, you know, Daytop had their outreach, they had their anyone before they'd come in would have to go to, if you were a heroin addict, would have to go to detox first. They would use sometimes public hospitals. Um, Out here where we are, we have programs that are specifically just detox programs, Mm -hmm. which is the way it's going and the way it should be. Um, And then they link them into residential programs from there. But uh, these, these places, these New England states that are now just overwhelmed are so far behind the curve with what they need to do to address this problem that it's just overwhelmed them. It's just like a 24-inch snowstorm is hit and they only predicted one inch and you got 24 inches, you just are not prepared. Right. What would I do if I was them? Well, depending on which New England state I I was in, I I was, because the people who are doing the most talking are the police chiefs of all of these different small, all of these different towns and or cities in, in these states because they're the ones that are responding to the calls mm-hmm. and, and getting the calls. 
they're the ones that are now calling for um, or basically saying the drug war has been lost. We need to do something different. Yeah. When you get police chiefs starting to say that, okay, especially in Vermont, okay, <laughs> you know something terrible yeah. is going on. Yeah. Okay. I doubt, I mean, I've never heard a New York City police commissioner come anywhere close to that. Publicly, at least. I've never seen that in the newspapers in New York. Um, I'm sure it may be unspoken, but I think they've reached a point, we've reached a point as a country where um, they can argue all they want about supply and demand, meaning like, uh, well, people just got to stop you know, buying and purchasing. But when you're dealing with addicts, that, that argument goes out the window. It's it's a useless, irrelevant argument. Once a person has become addicted to a drug, you know, trying to say, well, we got to figure out a way to stop the drugs from coming in is silly. And it's not like they have a very good track record. It's not like they have a good track record. Right. So if a billion pounds is trying to come in, but only a million pounds makes it in, it's more than enough. It's more than enough. And the amount that gets in, all that does is impact the price. You know what I mean? So if a million gets in, okay, the price is going to be one thing. If two million gets in, you know, supply and demand, price goes down. Mm -hmm. And the suppliers, you know, Columbia, they, they don't care. No, you know absolutely I mean? not. They, they don't care. They just want to get as much the in as they can. Yeah, the money. You know, the person who cares about the price is the you know the the, the retailer, yeah, the, retail, yeah. the retail dealer. Right, exactly. <laughs> and he exactly. might maximize my profit might, margins. Might, the retail dealer might artificially restrict you know the, you know supply to increase his uh, increase the profits. Right, right, right. I keep saying the word he. I, when I say he, I mean that in he or she because he or she can be a dealer. Right, of course. Some of the most successful drug dealers are women because no one expects them yeah. to be. Okay. Yeah. And, and and they're at and they're at the upper levels of the chain, by the way. Mm-hmm. So So we just wanted to talk a little bit about today, um, at least in the first half. How are we on time? Okay, we're good on we're time. We're good, yeah. Uh about this epidemic of heroin that's hitting the New England states, our former colonies, and that now I'm uh, I printed out some headlines. And, and now that it's hitting these areas, it's big news. It's front, it's front page headlines. It's help. You know, we need to do something different. Um, meanwhile, people are dying on the streets of San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, Detroit, Philly, St. Louis, you name it. And it doesn't make headlines. Heroin in New England, more abundant and deadly. In heroin crisis, uh-oh, listen to this one. White families seek a gentler war on drugs. That's the headline. When you make that up, I'm just reading the headline. Okay. <laughs> All right. Lethal strain of heroin strikes western Maine. This is Maine. Almost in Canada. Heroin epidemic spreads to the East Coast suburbs. New England confronts heroin epidemic. So you got all these headlines about it. But it's about the New England states. But as I was going to say, just to close this off, what I would do if I were them is I would look to the urban centers that are nearby and find out 
how you know what is your infrastructure like to deal with this problem? Mm-hmm. So if they went to New York or if they went to Philly, which are probably the two largest urban centers on that in that area, would you say in that colony? Probably, area, yeah. And you know what do you you know how do you have your detox center set up? How do you have your treatment program set up and things of that nature? Because they have nothing. They have nothing. And more importantly, they have no money. These states aren't, just by virtue of their population, aren't uh, cash-rich states. They don't have mass a massive federal infusion of money to support drug treatment. So what are they going to do? It's a terrible situation at which angle you look at it. Yeah, it's bad. Uh, and, and like you said... And the article so aptly points out, you kind of expect it from the bigger cities and the bigger hubs. Mm -hmm. And those things on a day-to-day basis don't even make news. It just is what it is. But the idea that it's spreading the way it's spreading, um, and this is not the first time a story like this has come down the pike in, in some area where maybe it wasn't expected, but from somebody who works in the field looking out, it's like how many flags do you need to go up before the people in charge of making decisions say maybe we ought to invest our money in a proactive manner instead of a reactive manner, Mm -hmm. which ultimately is, that's my money. That's your money. Anyone who pays taxes, that's our money. And uh, I guess maybe until... Anyone who has a vote, you know, all the taxpayers out there do a little research on their own and get wise to what it is and sit down and do some calculations and talk to people and figure out that, you know, my tax dollars could go here versus here and Mm -hmm. this is actually costing us more, then I need to vote for somebody in office who is pro-funding things like treatment and uh, you know, for lack of a, a better term, like a, like more of a democratic kind of mind versus uh, a conservative kind of mind. Because I don't care what anybody says, if you look at it just black and white and you think about cons- kind of a conservative, Republican, very general point of view, mm-hmm. we're talking about big business and jail is big business. True. However... In New York, that mold was kind of broken a little bit in the 70s and 80s. It was called the Rockefeller mold. Um, he's a, he wasn't a Democrat. And, <laughs> most, and, most billionaires aren't. And he he funded <clears throat> drug treatment. Um, and he was one of the primary benefactors, if you will, privately and publicly, of of daytop in those early days, um, basically giving them whatever they needed. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yep. To to whatever cost is what you know he helped provide um, in his role as a private citizen and as a public uh, person. You know, public mm-hmm. person. So he was governor. So. I want to move to our thing, and, you know, fortunately for listeners, we don't have a lot of time to spend on this because I know you guys have worked and, and uh, what's the word, uh, somehow 
finagled behind the scene to make sure I would never bring these topics up because uh, <laughs> uh, it goes into the weeds a little bit. Okay, but I think it's important, so I'm going to have to talk about it a little bit. Most of the big states, California, New York, uh, Illinois, um, what other big states? Florida. Uh, they've all, or will, California's probably leading the way, are adopting what's being called the Medicaid model for substance abuse treatment. And I've dubbed it uh, the making a deal with the devil model. Now, nice. why, now, why have I dubbed it that? It has a positive and a negative connotation when you use the word, on how I've described it. The devil being when you make a deal with the government, you know, there's always there's always stuff behind, you know, it's behind the scenes and the underground that, you know, you have to be wary of, leery of, I should say. So the deal is the government says, you know what? You know what we're going to do? We're going to pay whatever it costs to cover treatment. And we say as providers, wonderful, absolutely wonderful, because you've never paid what it cost. And then the government says, but in exchange for that, you're going to have to use our model. <laughs> okay? And your hands are and, tied, obviously. Right. So, and the problem with their model is everyone knows residential treatment is the highest modality in terms of cost of treatment. And every time some new program funding comes out or what have you uh, in any state, I'll just use California because that's the most recent example I have. Um, you know, they put a ballot initiative on the, on, 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 on the ballot to allocate a certain amount of money for treatment. And they they talk about and gear it towards new users. And every single time it ends up being, there's no such thing, quote unquote, no such thing as new users. The people that end up using the money are people who have been addicts for 5, 10, 15, 20 years because there's no other money for them to use to cover the, the high level of care that they need. And so we've made the argument over and over and over again so if someone's been an addict for 15 years they're, and they're, they're either coming out of jail or they're on the streets or what have you, what are the chances that they're going to succeed now, patient? They have no place to live or they're coming out of prison with no housing lined up. What are the chances they're going to succeed? None. Zero. And how patient? So we keep saying that. So obviously we need to put them in residential treatment step them down in care after a period of time and 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 no no longer are we just drug treatment providers by the way we now have to worry about housing we now have to worry about employment we now have to worry about medical care everything we yeah. now we have to do everything mm-hmm. not do but facilitate okay unlike the uh the big ship that daytop was that had the infrastructure for all of this stuff yeah, facilitating medical, facilitating legal, facilitating all all of these things. Okay, that's very rare now, and 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 there are very few providers in the country that exist at that level. Very few. 
Okay, most of them are like us. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right. You know, medium size providers, and but we're still now charged with doing all of those things. We have to find people housing because what are you going to do when they're done with residential? They just drop them off in the corner, and that's the end of it. So you got to find them housing. So you get a tra- we we have transitional homes. And how are they going to support themselves in housing and pay rent? You need a job. Not we got to help them. You no, know, you got to get work. But I'm just, uh, folks, not, it's not happening out here. We're in Silicon Valley, a, a studio, and I'm sure it's very expensive in New York also. But a studio out here is running anywhere between 1800 and 2000 Easy. A studio. Easy. Okay. So how do we expect someone to come out of treatment? Working a, 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 a job, whether it's a skilled job or not, and be able to afford that. So what ends up happening is they move into transitional living, and transitional living, because it's, it's much cheaper than independent living, becomes almost permanent living instead of transitional. You know, the intended purpose is no longer you stay there for six months, save up your save up your money, or a year, yeah, then you save go, up your money, go and get then, a place. then you go get a place, or go get some shared living with other, you know, some of your yeah, peers you or what have you. Yeah, you all go in on a little two, three-bedroom place. Right. Not possible anymore. Doesn't happen anymore. It, and it's just the the external economics are making it cost prohibitive for them to do that. So we're not. it's not their fault. It's just the reality. And so for the providers, like, okay, well, how do we stop? You know, we're getting this backlog now of the transitional houses are full and, and there's no place for the people to go. And like, well, so how's this problem going to get solved? So now here comes this new, refer, you know, reforming drug treatment, okay, using the Medicaid model. Government says, okay, we'll pay everything, but this is the model, okay? Originally, originally, they said, we are only going to allow and pay for 30 days of residential. We said, you are out of your mind. Yeah. You're out of your mind. Look at all the 30-day programs that are out there. Very, 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 very few of them work. <laughs> okay, you're out of your mind. So someone has been using for 15 years. Is not, 30 days is not going to do anything. No. And especially where we are in California, where the major drug of choice is methamphetamine, if the person needs at least 60 days, and I said at least, usually it's more closer to 90, days to just come down and reorient themselves to normal life. Okay? Mm-hmm. And then it's that second trimester of treatment that used to exist, you know, from three to six months, four or, four or five months, four or five and six, where they would start to finally, you know, dig in. But the first 90 days, they're just coming down. I'm telling you, this methamphetamine stuff is no joke. It's not like, you know, someone coming in off of cocaine or something like Even someone coming in off of heroin. After two two weeks to a month, you can get them settled and dug into treatment. Right. Not the case with methamphetamine. So we said, and I mean, thankfully, the state said, no, 30 days is not going to do it. In the end, they settled on 90 days with a possible but very rare extension to 30-day extension. Mm-hmm. But as providers, we're just saying, okay, 90 days of residential, that's the max. That's all they're going to pay for. And then the, the next step down is to day treatment, okay? And that's where the bulk of treatment is going to be, is in day treatment. And so that's new. Um, that changes everything for the provider. It changes everything for the people seeking treatment. 
unfortunately, it doesn't change it, for OCG. It's not uh, as traumatic because we have a recovery residence. The people are still going to be housed while they're in day treatment and all that good stuff. But forget about us. The most 99.9% of providers, day treatment is like a storefront operation. You live somewhere. Where, where you live is not our concern. And you show up for three hours a day, you know, five days a week, and you receive intensive treatment, but, you know, at right. the storefront operation. Right. They will allow within a 12-month period, so I can go into treatment for three months, go down to day treatment, and let's say if I, I'm not succeeding, I can go back into residential for another three months, but you can only do that once within a 12-month period. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just see – that's why I call it making a deal with the devil. So on one hand, you get something that you've been asking for for 25 years. You get it, and on the other hand, they cut your legs out in terms of you getting positive outcomes for people by screwing around with the uh, the modalities and the lengths of treatment um, and dictating from afar or above or wherever the hell they are below. <laughs> um, yeah. Hey, yeah, we think 90 days. When every single empirical study, every single study has shown that the longer someone is in residential, the better the outcomes. So that's what we have to deal with. That's that that's the new the new model of 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 treatment. 90 days residential, and then. Unlimited amount of time, you know, six to nine months maybe in day treatment. And again, for us, we're lucky. We're lucky. But for everybody else and the regular 99.9% of providers, it's going to be, you know, where are these people going to go after 90 days? You know, part of the thing about residential is that you provide housing. You know, they're, they're living in your facility and you're providing you know, shelter, right? You know, board and care and all that stuff. When I was in in treatment in, in Swan Lake, there were a tremendous amount of people that were homeless when they came into uh, Daytop. So it wasn't. Yes, it was about you know I need treatment, but also I, I don't have a place to live. And so while I'm getting treatment, what was provided for you? A roof over your head, a place to sleep, food to eat. The necessities and basics of life. Mm-hmm. There's no way that I can uh, focus on my recovery. And 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 when I say recovery, you know, I'm talking about everything, and including the one people don't mention a lot of that spiritual aspect, the whole holistic aspect of recovery. How can I focus on that and capture all of that if I'm living in the shelter? I mean, if that's where I am, that's where I am. I mean, but. Even anecdotal studies have shown that it's hard for someone to succeed when that's the case. Yeah. because Well, and like we spoke about, and it was in a show, I forget how long ago, but uh, the overlapping and distinct, yet distinct modules of treatment. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea that you can treat a whole person wholly, if, if you will, not wholly like spiritually, but like the whole person, <laughs> um, 90 days, even, ni- I mean, 30 days is laughable. Even 90 days, 
you know, one third of that to one half of that, like you stated, they're just detoxing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now you have about five to six weeks to completely transform a person? And I just want to be clear. No. There are many programs out there that are 90-day programs long before this. Okay, But the main thing that they had attached to their programs were, we might call them clean and sober houses now, but when residential treatment was finished at 90 days, people would step down into other homes. Yep. So less restrictive environments, but they would still come back to the main center, so to speak. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, and participate in recovery services, but they weren't living at the main center. They were living in a satellite home, so to speak. Okay? Right, right. Um, so that's how those um, were operated and, and still are operated. And so they kind of kept kept you close. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but the so I, I don't define those as quote unquote storefront, okay. But the the storefront treatment, and I don't say that in a negative or critical way. That what I mean by storefront is it's you know just a place you go to like on on city street and you walk in and you get treatment and you walk out, get on the bus and go home, mm-hmm. or wherever you are staying. Um. That's going to be harder for people who have a higher level of need. It's going to be harder. And now with the housing environment the way it is, the the pressure is to to find housing just for for people who aren't addicts, aren't in recovery. And now you have people in recovery having to, you know, you know, think about that while they're in the They'll call it the first trimester of treatment. I don't know how this is all going to work out, to be honest. I'm interested in hearing the outcomes after, you know, the, an outcomes report after the first six months of this. So where we live here in San Mateo County, it's going to start they're looking at July 1 to start. So I presume by December, if not September, we'll have an idea of how it's working or not. And we'll see what happens. But I like our setup. You already noted in the pro in the show today mm-hmm. that we're lucky, yeah. and it's true. Yeah, we are. We are lucky. There are. It's funny because it's new, and when you've only worked a handful of years in the field, when something new comes down the pike, uh, well, I'll speak for myself. I hated it. Okay, I hated the change because. I thought that what we were doing was working, and now we have to do something else. But I've I've been in the field long enough now to know that cha- change ought to be expected. You can expect change. But I found myself communicating to um, some of our clients who will step down and care to our, our other program that we have set up to, to take on those step-downs. Mm-hmm. The difference between how that looks today and how it looked before, granted, our program is unique in the idea that we we have that continuum where we can accept these clients. They're still under the same philosophies of the same program, just in a different branch of their own treatment now. Mm-hmm. But I actually, as I'm explaining it to them, <laughs> kind of sold myself on the idea that with what we have, it's really special because in our unique position – 
gone are the days where a client would get the 9 to 12 months really, really, really intense residential to here's some quarters, see you later. Like, you know, ha- have a good day. Mm-hmm. And you can come back once a week for your group and mm-hmm. join us for dinner whenever you want. Mm-hmm. Where you went from one really extreme environment to another. Mm-hmm. And how this kind of, you're not falling 10 feet from the building. There's a five-foot platform to catch you in. Okay, now you're in between. There's a little more freedom. Mm-hmm. You're going to go out of the house and take care of your own responsibilities a little more. Mm-hmm. But you're still coming back daily for groups and things of this nature before you go to the completely opposite end of the spectrum where you've transitioned out. And how I broke it down to them for lack of creativity and better analogies was you're going from jail to house arrest with an ankle monitor to you're completely off probation Mm -hmm. versus they open the gates for you in jail and here's the free world, you know, handshake and, and good luck to you. And I, and in explaining that to them, because I felt like it should be explained to anybody Mm -hmm. who's either seeking treatment for themselves or uh, is looking into treatment for somebody that you love or someone in your family that that continuum actually provide something that wasn't provided before mm-hmm. in our case, because not every program is set up like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in our case, I think it can be really beneficial to have almost like a built-in, uh, what is it, the Michigan training grounds or proving grounds? Proving, proving grounds. We have a built-in system like that where you're not going from, from one extreme to the other. You're going to the middle first. See where you're at yeah. kind of thing. That's why... I would not use our program as an example of the, of what it of looks the, like. of the impact because right. We're, right. we're set up very differently, and it's not going to be, like you said, that 10-foot fall off the cliff. Right. Um, but you said something that reminded me that just to give you an idea of how sometimes government thinks, okay? So when we pick up clients from uh, from the local jail to bring them the treatment, they get released to our to us to our custody, mm-hmm. and our intake person picks them up in the morning. Do you know in this county when people get released, just released outright, they release them at twelve midnight. You're so, lying. No, that's serious. So I once asked our intake person, <laughs> "That is rough." What is the thinking behind releasing someone at twelve midnight rather than like during the business day so they can catch a bus? Yeah, like nine a.m. <laughs> by the way, folks, the buses do not run twenty four hours a day out here like they well, do public in, transportation in New York. out here is terrible. If you if 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 you need to catch a bus and it's past nine o'clock, you're SOL. You're just not going to find one or a train. So so it's basically cab. But they let them out at 12 midnight or shortly before 12 midnight. Yeah. So, like, if your release date is today, it would be, like, at 11.50-something so that it's today. But And he had no idea why, why they do that. There was, you know, no rationale like, oh, you know, we just didn't want, you know, if we have a whole bunch of people to release, we didn't want to set them out in the community, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, I'm not saying that's what he said. I'm I'm saying that he didn't even say that that's what they said, that, like, they had some rationale. They have no rationale. It makes absolutely no sense why they do that. Yeah. So I have, it's been five years. I still haven't gotten an answer why they let people out at that time of the night from their release date. 
I left him yeah, speechless, that, folks. Yeah, yeah. No, that, <laughs> I mean, that makes I, – I couldn't – usually I can play devil's advocate even if I don't agree with the other side, mm-hmm. but I can't even think of a logical or linear argument to make other than maybe they got sued at some point and someone said, hey, this was my release date and technically at 12 midnight, that is the date they held me eight hours beyond my will and – yeah, you know, I don't know, but I mean, it wouldn't. It doesn't make sense to me anyway because they could stipulate that in the paperwork that you sign upon being admitted into jail, that on the release date that you're, you know, whenever your release date I is. I don't think you get admitted into jail. Well, I think you get dragged in. <laughs> yeah, however that looks, um, but you know, it, there could be a stipulation made or stated that you'll be released at you know 10 a.m. on the day of your release or whatever versus this date because i mean you know maybe technically they could make an argument but yeah it doesn't make any sense all right anyway so moving forward regardless of what anyone else other than myself connected to ocg radio thinks or says i will be providing updates on uh this uh treatment trans this transformation of treatment uh, regardless of how boring and in the weeds it may be, <laughs> I think it's important information for people to know because it's coming to a city near you if it's not there already, or a state near you if it's not there already. True. I'm almost certain that it's uh, in New York because New York, Illinois, and, Ch- and New York, Illinois, and California were the three states that applied for the federal Medicaid waiver okay. in order to use Medicaid dollars for residential treatment, which it was not eligible for before. So I would think they're all, all three states, if not more, are operating under the same waiver and the same rules. So it's going to have an impact. Unless, the only caveat, I should have added this, nothing prevents a locality, either the state or local county or city, from adding to the 90 days with their own funds, with local money. Well. Nothing prevents them from doing that. So if our county said, well, we agree 90 days is not long enough, we'll pay for an additional 90 days to make it a six, up, you know, up to a six-month period, right. they can do that if they so choose. If they so choose. And they have so ch- chosen not to. <laughs> <laughs> right. So right. far. So far. So Let far. me be fair. So far. July 1st is not here yet. So far, they have so chosen not to. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I think we're at the little past the top of the hour. It's all right. It was a good twofer. It was a yep. twofer. Two for Tuesday. Well, perfect. Uh, we do see we have some folks on hold who are calling in for our recovery support time. So we hope you've enjoyed the show to this point. We thank you for being patient with us. We will get to you on the other side, as on the other side is our recovery support time. Right. I just want to say so. The music break, the song that I've actually chosen, I chose this song for a reason having to do with the topics we discussed. There you have it. Listen in, folks. Pick apart every word. Yell at him if you disagree on the other side.
Coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. Okay, welcome back to Roach on Recovery. Uh, we're going to... I love cutting him off with that one. Yeah, I was going to say, before we retire, he's either going to get that clip right as soon as I say, after I say, welcome back to Roach on Recovery, or I'm going to get in before... Before the clip is dropped. dropped. (laughs) One of those two will happen. A lot of X-Files, a lot of X-Files. I'm going to start off with the first question. We've committed that, you know what, no matter what's asked, we'll answer. No matter how out there it is, no matter how embarrassing it may be, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, This may or may not be the person's real name, but I'll use it anyway. Uh, Honey from Las Vegas. Used to drink and was a full-time exotic dancer, quote-unquote. I'm in recovery now and don't have the urge to drink. Can I still dance? Uh, We pass no judgment. Uh, We're about recovery, not lines of work. So all we care about is that uh, you stay clean and sober, not uh, whether or not you continue to exotically dance or not. Oh, I missed the question, and it involves exotic dancing, does it? Uh, yeah, she's a full-time exotic dancer in recovery and wants to know if, since she, she has, wants to know if she can still dance. So I think I delicately... What yeah. was your answer? I'd like to know. I was screening a call. And I like when you're on the spot with questions one you the, don't typically want to answer. One of the good things is I often don't remember my answers, <laughs> which is actually healthy. Okay. You know, not clear, because it clears out immediately out of the, the brain. Um, so I have no idea what I said. You'll have to play the tape. All right, great. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
I said we are about recovery here. We don't we don't pass judgment on one's as long as it's not illegal, of course. One's uh, um, line of work. Okay, great. I like the sound of that. Yep. Uh, George from San Francisco is alcoholism supposedly harder to recover from than tobacco. Is alcohol harder to recover from than tobacco? Harder I'm, to recover from I don't, needs yeah, to be... Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I would even put them in the same category, only because, again, nicotine is the most addic- addictive drug known to man. However, people are not uh, engaging in negative and destructive lifestyles to pursue the purchase of tobacco products, at least not to my knowledge. Whereas, okay. you know, okay. an alcoholic who doesn't have any money or whatever will do stuff. But um, generally speaking, so let's take the tobacco out of it. If if we were looking at the drugs of abuse that we deal with, um, out to me, alcohol is the hardest just because all other things being equal... I mean, once you leave and you're in, out there in the recovery world, it's the you know only drug that's really smacking you in the face legally in terms of advertisement and billboards and commercials and, I mean, you name it. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. your commitment's got to be on point because there's so many things just putting it in your face. And, and, and it's such like you've mentioned in the past, it's such an accepted part of, of society and certain uh, functions in society, you know. What I'm yeah, saying? and if I can, and I'd like to even tweak my outlook on saying how accepted it is in society, mm-hmm. because I don't even think accepted is an appropriate term to describe the force with which it's put in your face. Mm-hmm. It's beyond accepted. It's it's almost expected mm-hmm. that if you are of age. Mm-hmm. Drinking is something you do. Mm-hmm. It's not just something society accepts. It's something society expects you to do. Mm-hmm. This, it, we're going to advertise to you because everybody drinks. Mm-hmm. That's So I think that gives it a little more weight or mm-hmm. force as opposed to saying, oh, sure, it's accepted as if like, oh, if I see someone drinking and, and they're of age, that's mm-hmm. fine. It's like, no, if I go into a restaurant, I would expect to see people drinking everywhere. Mm-hmm. It, it's I think it's stronger than accepted. So just throw that out there. Now, I am going to throw Are you going to battle me right now? No, I'm going <laughs> to throw my mother under the bus. Uh-oh. I had nothing to do with this, by the way. And this is just interesting here to me. This is circa 1998, we're on vacation in Jamaica. Not Jamaica, Queens. Okay. Jamaica, the island. Uh-huh. My mother, good Christian woman to my knowledge, has never drank alcohol. I have never seen her drink alcohol, ever. Okay? Okay. We're at my aunt's house in the backyard enjoying the traditional Sunday dinner. And somehow, I don't know what kind of alcohol it was, wine, champagne, or whatever, or champagne, who knows, appeared. (laughs) And And they're passing around little half glasses. Okay? Now, they know I don't drink. And I, and I, right. I didn't even drink when I was using. I just alcohol just never appealed to me. Um, 
But I couldn't believe my own mother and sister. I got to throw her under the bus too, my older sister. You know, like almost ushering a glass towards me. Oh, and yeah. I, and I said, and like you talk about, you know, the expectation. And I said, no, no, I'm fine. And I'm looking at my mother. I'm like, what? Now, she didn't drink anything, but just that she was standing there, you know what I mean, amongst <laughs> amongst this champagne or wine, whatever it was, being passed around and not, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mind you, her sisters, my aunts, they're all very super <laughs> religious. And I'm like, where did this come from? Right. I don't remember any of this growing up. I didn't see alcohol, although they did use Jamaican rum in their cakes and, all, and whatnot, but that's okay. a whole other conversation. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I just thought it surprising to see that as an adult, you know, like, and and I still, I have to ask my sister who actually brought the alcohol to that event. You should. Anyway, and my sister took a swiggle. I don't <laughs> think I didn't notice that. <laughs> Got to talk to her, a good Christian woman. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's, uh. Some, on a much shorter scale of time that is for a story of my own uh grandmother's the first time she drank a glass of what have you been calling it champagne champagne uh the toast on her wedding night mm-hmm. and um would just would rarely drink mm-hmm. you know just cuz she didn't like it but even you know so someone to say it in in saying that somebody who doesn't drink still on their wedding night is going to have a drink because, mm-hmm. again, it, it's expected. Yeah. It's what you do. It's mm-hmm. part of your culture. Now, I, I will say this. I did see growing up in the pantry closet uh, every now and then after the aunts would come to, from Jamaica to visit and they would depart, there would be a bottle of 150 overproof Jamaican rum in the closet. Which was not used for drinking. It was used to make um, buns, Jamaican buns, fruit buns. Okay. And they would put the rum in there and so on and so forth. Sure. And so uh, I am almost certain that my older brothers at some point started sneaking swaggles from the bottle. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right. I do recall sniffing it once and my head recoiling back. That's how strong it was. That bad, huh? Wow. Yeah. All right. A couple more real quick. Uh, Kyle from Carson City. Why is it not recommended to start a relationship while in, while in a program? Real quick. You take that one. Uh, the focus has to be about you, Kyle. Whenever we engage in relationships, both inside and outside of treatment, it's a two-way street. It's reciprocal. You're going to have to put in as much effort as you expect the other to put in for it to work. And if you are exerting X amount of energy on something other than your own treatment, that is X amount of energy you should be exerting on your own treatment. How's that? Excellent. All right, last one for now, and uh, this one might take a little bit of time. L.A. from Oakland. Why do I continue to have thoughts of selling drugs and being unfaithful to women? Well, since we we do have a disclaimer at the front of the show that we are not doctors, psychologists, or psychiatrists, <laughs> uh, we can't get into your brain. Um, but <clears throat> the thoughts of the question, the way it's phrased, why do I continue to have thoughts of selling drugs 
and uh, being unfaithful to women. So I'm going to separate out the selling yeah, drugs one. Yeah, let's separate them out because they don't have to go together. No. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, when you think about something, it doesn't automatically constitute a desire to do it. If it if you have done something in the past, it's going to be in your memory banks, and you will think about it in the future because things may trigger the thought and so on and so forth. It's kind of a hard thing to answer. I'm not going to hammer him on the uh, thinking about being unfaithful to women. Okay, I will hammer him on being unfaithful to women because that is a character flaw, and if he was in our program, we would be all over him in terms of digging down deep into that character flaw right. and finding out what's behind that. Why can't you be trusted? Why aren't you trustworthy? Why aren't you honest? Um, why, you know, why is that your way of experiencing relationships, et cetera, et cetera? But since we don't have him there, we can't get into all that. All right, who's up first? to the phones, and we have DeFonzo from Redwood City. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my, qu- my question is, uh, without treatment, what percentage of people relapse? I don't have the answer to that stat because they actually don't keep track of people that don't enter treatment and that are users or abusers, addicts, etc., to determine whether or not if they, on their own, uh, stop using and whether or not they're successful or not. Um, just anecdotally, and what I mean by anecdotally, just from my own personal experience, I've known very few people, okay, I do know some, okay, my best friend, my wingman, okay, stopped on his own, Okay, and never use drugs illegal drugs, I should say again, okay, but he's the only person I know that has done that okay, everyone else had everyone else has had to sort you know seek out some help from others okay, thank you, okay, all right, thank you bye bye How about you from your experience? Um, I mean, I would agree. I, I would agree, and I would say, you know, my my mind track is on the same wavelength as far as my experience. This is this is what I've seen, kind of exactly how you stated mm-hmm. it. And um, yeah, I mean, this is I I think that that is not generational, maybe yeah. either. And this is just what happens. Mm-hmm. I have a friend uh from from that's a part of our peer circle growing up, um who was one of the um, early peers to get involved in, in drug use. So one of the first, right, at the front end. and The leader of the pack. No, it, it was, maybe it was like a group of three or four that started out and started using, and, you know, got to the point they were using cocaine. He just stopped cold, cold turkey. turkey, said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going down that road. This is not happening. And that was it. Wise and strong beyond his years. And never went back and, you know, drank beer, but that was it. Other than that, other than him, um, everyone else kind of uh, had to, you know, go go through something and, and seek help other than uh, Joe. 
Hmm. Uh, let's see. Sam from Walnut Creek. Just heading back to the X-Files real quick. He has a great question. Will my brain heal after I have some long-term recovery? This is why this is a great question. This is currently, as we speak, as we sit here being studied about the impact of drugs on um, the brain, um, illicit drug use and illicit um, drug use, and whether or not when a person stops, does the brain recover, show signs of recovering from that use? Number one, do they look at the brain prior to, look at the brain during the course of, and then after a period of recovery, look at the brain? So far, the early signs, just from what I, little bit I've read, the early signs are that there is some positive change in the brain after a six-month period of time of stop using. So they haven't officially said, well, if you go longer, if you're a year, two years, three years, five years, that the brain continues, continues, continues. Who knows? It just might stop at a certain point, but those things are still going on. David Deitch, co-founder of Daytop. That's one of the things that he is currently heavily involved in are the brain studies, uh, the impact of addiction on the brain and how it affects the brain and what can be done to roll back the negative impact of the effects on the brain. So that's where he's in his – he's an octogenarian, but he's still in the game, and that's where he's turned his focus to. Um, And that's all good stuff. I mean, it's a (laughs) – I'd want to know. We got that term I mean, coming at us again. Uh, <laughs> yeah, octogenarians. Um, I think anyone who's used drugs for an extended period of time wants to know, you know, you know what, what have I done? You know, what's going to be the impact? I always say, and this is not to scare anyone, I say to myself, in some way, shape, or form, I believe we're going to pay the piper. You know, we just don't know how. So... I smoked marijuana, I did cocaine in powder form, I did crack cocaine. So I asked myself, you know, so in what ways am I going to pay? Well, you know, you, they say if you smoke marijuana for an extended period of time, you know, eventually you you have short-term memory loss. Well, how do you tell the difference between that and just the natural aging process? process? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. <clears throat> The only thing I personally have going for me is I didn't use that long, but um, I still believe you're going to pay uh, pay the piper. So this is good stuff for us to find out um, and know, because maybe if we if they find out the definitive answer, there may be things we can do to uh, offset. Let's say let's use that term offset the the damage that we have done. My mother, she's been in, she's a nurse for 40 years, has already come up with the answer, by the way, from her perspective, which is to keep the brain active by doing certain things, playing certain word games, and so on and so forth. And as long as you do that, you will uh, keep your brain healthy. This is, maybe that's the reason why at going on age 88, no one likes to play Scrabble, Boggle, uh, you know, any type of word game, no one plays with her anymore because she absolutely destroys us <laughs> and just makes it just, it's no fun to play. I love that story when you tell me that, by just, the way, every time. You know, 
And when we play Scrabble, she uses old English, you know, King's English words that you never heard of and just, you know, wipes you off the board. Anyone who can master the three, the three, the three letter words in Scrabble. Just kill, oh, yeah, just yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you always have something to play. Yes. All right. Let's go to Justin from Daily City. Welcome to the show. Hello. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm fine. So my question is, uh, can a person become addicted to medications prescribed by a doctor? Yes. Absolutely. If they have addictive qualities in them, absolutely. Oh, yeah? Okay. Now, there's a difference between someone becoming addicted and someone becoming dependent. Yes. Okay? There are many people out there that have you know, suffered horrible injuries or whatever and are taking various medications that are, quote-unquote, addictive, and um, the bodies become dependent on them. And the reason we use a differentiation between the two words is because although the body is physically, quote-unquote, dependent on the drug, and so they use it because they need it and they use it because they have to use it anyway, but they are not engaging in a lifestyle that is the definition of being an addict. So they're being responsible with the utilization of the drug. The drug is improving the quality of their life. Okay, They're not using more than what they need to to address the issue that they have. Okay, These are all things that a person has to do to responsibly use a drug that can possibly become addictive. Yes. And each person knows when they've crossed that line. Okay. All right, thank you. You're very welcome. I'm sure that's a major topic of discussion in the programs. Has to be. Unlike yesteryear, or maybe, you know, when I was in treatment, maybe I just wasn't aware, but, you know, more now, more so now than maybe in the past, people are on a lot of different medications. Not all of them are addictive, but I'm just saying, you have high blood pressure and. Um, liver medication and kidney medication and heart medication and this, you know, all, all different types of things, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it, not all of it, just from the, you know, the life, being out there a long time. Again, we deal with the long-term addicts here. So there's a, there's a, there's a lot of wear and tear on the body. But uh, like I said, some people have, you know, dealing with, you know, pain issues and, and, and chronic issues and so on and so forth. And, yes, there are some of them are on stuff that could that, that is addictive. Okay. Yeah. The question is, how do you handle it? Are you responsible? It's this to me, the answer is the same as I gave to the person that had asked me a few years ago about, if they're if about taking using medical marijuana yep. okay, to deal with an, an issue that they had and nothing else had worked and they had found relief with this. And if by using that, would that be considered me relapsing? So this is the profound question that was posed to me as if I somehow had the answer. And my answer was very simple. It had nothing to do with me. It has to do with you. 
and whether or not if it if it solves the issue and you are not abusing it and not using more than what you need to to improve your quality of life, then my answer was no. But if one toke does it, but you're two, you're taking four and five tokes a day. All right. Sorry, we got a different. That's a different conversation. So if one pill deals with the chronic pain and restores a quality of life that's, you know, doable, but somehow you've ended up on five and six, okay? Yeah. That's a different conversation. Different conversation. Has your pain increased? Has your pain changed? Now, if you say 10 years down the line, it increases, not the pain, but the medication increases. That's because of the tolerance, okay? But we expect to see some significant time in between that, okay? Let's go to Alexander from San Francisco. The great San Francisco. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm all right. My question is... uh, Oh, hold hold it. Alexander, hold a second. Yeah. Are you are you a Niner fan? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. That's what I'm talking about. We need more Niner fans on this show. <laughs> All right, sir. Go ahead with your question. <laughs> All right. So my question is, uh, why is it in our addictions we lose interest in certain activities and hobbies? Well, have you ever heard the expression... You know, that someone's, you know, they're, they're, they're in their addiction and whatever the drug of choice is that they're abusing, that that drug becomes their girlfriend? Yeah, yeah. Same analogy. So if, you know, if you were into sports and or into, you know, whatever, and, you know, whatever social or recreational activity, positive activity that you were into, and, and you are now in the throes of your addiction, the, 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 that drug is now that activity. Your your life yeah. revolves around that, so nothing else nothing else matters but that drug. How about when we're like say, uh, well, I'm in a program now, and um, it's hard for me to find like uh, I mean I've been I've been clean for only seven months and I'm still you know coping with myself, but uh, it's hard. Hey, wait a minute, wait wait, a... wait 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 wait. Okay. Why why do you minimize it? You say I've been clean for only seven months. Because I, I have not, I'm, I'm still losing like the interests I had before, like at hobbies and like hiking or whatever it may be. Right. Um, I find it not as interesting still. Did you do those things under the influence before? Yeah, I have, and before that too as well. <laughs> did you do Did you do any of those things straight? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So in the past, when you did them straight, did you not enjoy them? Oh, I did, yeah. Okay. So trust me on this one. If you resume those things straight again, you will enjoy them again. It's different, though, if you would have said, you know what? All of those things that I did, I always did high. So I don't know what it's like to do them, you know, straight. So I have yeah. I, I I'm I'm kind of, I'm I'm wondering whether or not I'm going to enjoy them the same way, and I would tell you that okay, it'll be easy for me to say yes you will. It'll be what the reality is is that you're going to have to do it so that you can experience it for yourself and see for yourself that that would be the case that you would enjoy them. 
even more so because a lot more uh, experience will be opened up to you because your mind will be so alive, your body will be so alive, you'll experience it more than when you were high. I see. All right. Thank you. That's a concern we hear often from clients in our program worrying about I won't call it an unnecessary worry, but I think sometimes the worry is ill-timed, meaning like it's you don't have to worry about it right now, but maybe when you get to this stage, you can start thinking about it. But worrying about whether or not, you know, without drugs, am I going to enjoy my life? Is it going to be fun? Am I going to have laughter? And, 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 and all the things that I allegedly, my hands are up in quotes, Could had only do when I was, when I was high. high. Well, you know, <clears throat> the response... And I have to, uh, I can give a shout out to an employee and a member of the board on this radio show, right? Sure. I have to give a shout out to Sonia Hale because she was a counselor way, way, way back in the day. And I learned something from her and I've stolen her line when people come to me with this and, and I use it to this day. And and we'll paraphrase here, but so to, the the line, so to speak, stands as this. I didn't get clean to be miserable, mm. right? So I only have one life, and uh, I'd like to enjoy my life and have laughter and be able to have fun and mm-hmm. do all these things. And I now am in the privileged position of sitting back and being able to compare one life to the other, the life of when I was getting high and having fun with whatever I did there and everything else it came with, as well as the life that I live now without drugs and you better believe whichever one of those two lives I enjoyed the most, all things considered, that's the life I would be living. Mm -hmm. And I sit today in front of you clean. Mm -hmm. So nobody gets clean and sober to be miserable and unhappy and and not enjoy their lives. Um, And I I steal that line all the time. Like, hey, man, (laughs) we only have one life, and you better believe if after I got clean, I hated everything about my life, I probably wouldn't be here clean right now. Well, I also think it's important, since you gave a shout-out to Sonia, uh, that we complete the shout-out. All right, let's do it. That not only did she come to us as an adolescent um, and graduate, um, that uh, however many years it's been, I don't how many years it's been, 15 years, something like that? She was a counselor and a graduate in 2001. Okay, so we're, yeah, 15 years, but i probably add a couple more on that. Graduated a couple she, years before that, probably, so, 99 maybe. Right, So, and but I'm talking about from when she first came to us as an adolescent Probably client, 98. Right, to now uh, being the president of our board. It's, you answer to her now, baby. Okay, <laughs> that's coming full circle. Yeah, that's big time. Okay, Um all right, let's go to um, Corinne from West Hollywood. Yeah, hi. Um, so uh, my question is, how does drug addiction treatment help reduce the spread of HIV, AIDS, Hep C, and other infectious diseases? How does it decrease it? Yes. Well, if you get people into treatment, the likelihood of them engaging in high-risk behaviors drops significantly. Okay. 
One, uh, and they're, they're, so they're no longer out there in those quote unquote unrestricted environments engaging in high risk behavior. That's number right. one. Number two, while while they're in the captive audience of the treatment environment, they're getting education. Okay. okay about those high risk behaviors and the and the negative consequences of them, et cetera. So just by virtue of removing themselves from that environment, learning about those behaviors and, and why they shouldn't engage in those behaviors reduces the risk significantly. Okay. And by the way, even if yeah. they weren't in treatment and you made information available to them, you know, information and other types of programs that they have in certain cities, needle exchanges and so on and so forth, you'd reduce the risk. Okay, well, thank you. You're very welcome. That's a great question. That's a good question. And and if I can't get someone, if I can't get you initially to abstinence, I don't mind harm reduction. So I'm not so locked in that I, I got to get you stopped 100% today. But if you're smoking four blunts today, and I can get you down to two blunts next week and down to one blunt, you know, sometime thereafter and down to a half a blunt, if I got to work you that way, I'll work you that way. As long as we get to the ultimate goal. Right. And if that happens right away or if that happens in the year, it doesn't matter to me. As long progress as we, is progress. As as we we got to be progressing. As long as we get there. Yep. All right, I'm going to go back to the X-Files real quick. <clears throat> Ricardo from San Francisco, who do I call when I have no sober network or sponsor and I really want to use? So I used to set up a seminar this way <clears throat> using this question kind of as the the root of the seminar. You come into treatment, you get all this information, you, you establish peer relationships, foundations of possible f- future friendships, etc. And you complete your treatment experience and you're now out in the world. And so I ask the client, while you are in the midst of your treatment experience, what should you be preparing for? And we get very, I get various answers and whatnot. And what I'd like to tell them is that you should be able to, and, it's, and it, it would be my goal to prepare you to be your own last resort. That there may come a time when, as Ricardo writes, I really want to use and no one is available to me. There's no sponsors, there's no support network available, and there's no one to call. Well, who are you going to rely on? The only person left is you. And then it comes down to, do you have enough self-control and enough self-discipline to do what's necessary to not pick up when it's just you there on your own? Uh, yep, that's right. Left to your own devices. Right. And that's what I want to build you to. Not to 
reliance on others, but reliance on yourself. Because that situation may present itself at some point in the future. Yeah. Who, I mean, who knows what may trigger such a, you know, an, uh, an experience? Who knows? You know, someone could uh, lose somebody, experience a loss, and they're just sitting there in the room, and that's what they feel at that moment in time. And there's either no one available to them, or what if you don't feel like talking to anybody? Right. You know, you don't want to talk to anybody. That's just the space that you're in. Yep. The same question still comes to you. Do you have the self-control and self-discipline to not make a bad decision, mm-hmm. to ride it out? Understand that it's just feelings. Yeah. They will pass. Yep. You will not pass away from them, but they will pass. That's right. It's hard to get people to buy into, though. It's hard to get them to buy into. Yeah, because you're selling them a ticket uh, for the future. Mm-hmm. What I feel, I feel right now. And you telling me that is not resolving I'm telling you, you're not how gonna, I feel I'm right you, now. But I'm telling you, you're not going to die. Right, right. And I, yeah, sure, I can believe that. But right now, this is almost worse than death. I'd yeah, almost yeah, rather yeah. die. I know, that's the answer <laughs> they're going to say. But it feels like I am dying. Right. I don't know. But... That's just my philosophy in terms of counseling people that I want to counsel them to the point that they have built themselves up to the point that they can withstand mm-hmm. that very, very low point. That's right. On their own. Right. Well, of course, yeah, that's got to be the ultimate goal because if, if you can do that. Right. The likelihood, is, the likelihood is you're not going to be on your own. That there is sure. going to be someone Always, available. There right. is going to be a support network. but. I'm building you as if there's not going to be. Worst case scenario. Exactly. And if you can if you can triumph through that, the world is yours, my friend. Because remember, I'm like Boeing. When we build oh, here air, we go. When we build airplanes, we build in redundancies and backups and, and multiple backup systems. And so that's how we counsel or me counsel the client. Yeah. To, to have this fail safe in there that no matter how bad it gets. You're not gonna crash and die. That I'm gonna not going to make that bad decision, no matter how bad I feel. There you go. Can I have your number, Orville? Nope. <laughs> you got the number of the show. <laughs> All right, let's go uh, to... Hey, now, see, easy, my friend. Someone's losing track of time. Oh, you got 20 seconds. Oh, oh it's not enough time. So I maybe a shout-out to the two folks who are on hold. Your question is important to us. I feel like an attorney now. Yeah, but uh, clean it up for me. Clean it up. <laughs> but yeah, um, I we was rambling. Are, we are up at the end of it, but we do see we got a couple people on hold, um, and we would encourage you to call back for the next show um, because we do want to talk to you and we do care about what it is you have to ask. And we thank you for calling this time. We just ran out of time. Um, you you want to say something before I sign us off here? Yeah, our show we got to make it snappy. Our show close song also has a meaning to it in, in terms of our two topics. Perfect, perfect. All right. Well, again, uh, we'd like to thank everybody who called in either to participate or just to listen. We appreciate the ongoing support from all of our callers and people who listen in through the archives. Speaking of the archives, you may want to listen through them via the archives next week because we are not having a show next week we are on an every other basis i'm going to get cut off again here 29th the 29th is when we will be back on the air and back live so until then please help yourselves to the plethora of shows we have for you to listen to via the podcast uh we hope everybody has a safe couple of weeks and uh 
Enjoy your weekends until then, and we will chat with everybody on the 29th. Take care.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby, are you